A global food crisis is taking shape all around the world, a grave situation that is expected to deepen. We need a new system. We need a new society. We need to demand that which may have sounded impossible even a few weeks ago, but is not only realizable, but an imperative necessity. Excited to have Professor Richard Wolf join us again for our regular weekly segment where we talk about the biggest stories relating to the economy, the state of the working class, and the crimes of big business. I'm your host, Brian Becker. The Socialist Program brings you content three days a week thanks to the support of our patrons at patreon.com forward slash the socialist program. We appreciate all of your support and encourage you to become a patron today if you enjoy listening to this show. Richard Wolf is the co-founder of the organization Democracy at Work, the author of many books, the latest being The Sickness is the System, When Capitalism Fails to Save Us from Pandemics or Itself. There's also a new hard copy edition of Professor Wolf's book, Understanding Marxism, which has been released recently. It features a new lengthy introduction. Be sure to check out all of his work at rdwolf.com. That's R-D-W-O-L-F-F.com. Professor Wolf, welcome back. Thank you, Brian. Glad to be here. Well, I'm looking at all of the, the dire warnings in all of the major news outlets, the financial papers. Here's the head of the World Bank. The head, David Malpass, a new global food crisis is building. I want to read a couple of sentences to you, Professor Wolf, and get your comments. The war in Ukraine has triggered an alarming global surge in government controls on the export of food. It's critical for policymakers to halt the trend, which is making a global food crisis more likely. In the space of a few weeks, The number of countries slapping on food export restrictions jumped by 25%, bringing the total number of countries to 35. Second, food accounts for at least half of total expenditures of households in low-income countries. In 2008, the food crisis brought on a significant increase in malnutrition, particularly among children. Some studies showed school dropout rates as much as 50% higher among children from poorest households because of the price of food. Social and economic damage of that kind will not be easily reversed. Professor Wolf, this is one story, the head of the World Bank. I could read you 10 more. Again, 2008 was in the middle of the financial crisis. That food crisis became so severe that in many ways, the increase in the cost of bread, the price of bread, really was a trigger for what we call the Arab Spring a couple of years later in 2011. But again, this is something that people in the United States, I think, are not really, I mean, yes, we can see food prices are going up, but this kind of staggering impact 
on global populations, especially people in what is known as the global south. Anyway, your thoughts? Well, I think there's two things to get clear. One, what are the causes of this food price inflation? And number two, what are the consequences? And maybe number three, what would be an alternative arrangement or solution? So first, what's the problem? The problem is listed as the Ukraine war. That's not accurate. Part of the problem is the war in Ukraine because it is having effects, although we don't know exactly how big these effects are. It's having effects on the amount of land that is being seeded and plowed in the Ukraine. Ukraine was a major producer and exporter of grain, and therefore that is part of the story. An equally important part of the story, probably a larger part, is the program of sanctions against Russia mounted by the United States, the United Kingdom, and a few other European countries. That is changing global patterns of everything from fertilizer production to shipping to planting in the earth, you name it. And it is also having a very disruptive effect on the world production and trade in food. To make a long story short then, food has become scarcer than it was a year ago. The price of food, by the way, started rising long before Russia invaded Ukraine, but that has made it worse, the war and then the sanctions. This is going to cause horrible hunger, horrible suffering. I want to remind people that even in rich countries like the United States and Western Europe, we're coming off two of a, arguably the worst years in modern capitalist history. We had at the same time, people need to remember, in the years 2020 and 2021, we had simultaneously one of the worst public health disasters in the world, where, for example, countries like the United States and the United Kingdom had extremely poor responses, resulting in huge numbers of deaths and illnesses far beyond the populations of those countries in terms of the rest of the world. And at the same time, we had an economic crash, second only to the Great Depression of the 1930s. So we had two horrible years, and to follow them with all the suffering they entailed with now an inflation running at around 8 to 10% for prices in general, and much more than that for many food items, it is really subjecting the working classes around the world, but including in Western Europe, North America, and Japan. It's really a terrible sequence of blows to the standard of living, to the security of health, body, and mind. It's extraordinary. So, all I can say is capitalism as a system is really pushing the envelope of its own survival by subjecting huge numbers of people 
to everything from squeezed budget after two years of suffering on all the way over to literal starvation. So then the question remains, what could be done? And maybe this is the alternative that people ought to be talking about, but of course, in our society, no word of it. When something is scarce, whatever it is, when the supply, we say in economics, is less than the demand, which is all scarcity means. And in this case, we know that there's a scarcity of food relative to what there was before. Under those circumstances, the question is, how do you distribute something that has become scarce? And this would be true whether it was water or electricity or food or anything else. There's one clearly moral, ethical, rational way to do this. It's called rationing. In other words, we take what's scarce and we say, look, there's not enough to give everybody who wants some of this what they want, because there isn't enough. That's what supply short of demand means. That's what the word scarce means. Doesn't mean anything else. So how are we going to handle this? Well, we could say some people have to do without any so that other people can have as much as they want. Most of us would realize this is intrinsically unfair. So we could have a different rationing system. We could say, let's distribute the food so that, here's, for example, a rule, everybody gets enough so that they don't starve to death. Everybody gets enough that they have a reasonable shot at a healthy physical well-being. We don't do that either. You know what we have? We have a market solution. You know that thing that conservatives love, the market, or that libertarians celebrate, the market? Well, here's how the market distributes scarce things. They go to whoever has the most money. Here's how it works. When things are scarce, people who used to get them discover, oh, they're scarce, and they're afraid then they won't get any. So they offer to pay a higher price than whatever is being asked. And that takes another person who says, oh goodness, these things are becoming hard to get. I better offer even more than the first person offered. And so what we call bidding up happens. The price of the food gets bid up. And as that happens, of course, the poorest folk can't afford the higher prices. So as the price keeps going up, as people with money keep bidding it up, people without money fall away. Until what? Until the point is reached where the price is so high that the demand, having been shrunk by the poor people who fall away, is equal to the smaller supply. Long story short, in plain English, what the market does is distribute whatever is scarce to the richest people amongst us. And let me be clear with everyone what it means. 
a millionaire can go out and bid up the price of milk so that he has enough to take home and feed to his pets. Whereas the starving poor family with six children to feed can't afford to get any milk. The poor family does without so that the rich family can feed its pets. This is not a make-believe example. This is going on as we speak right now here in the U.S. and around the world. If you let the market solve scarcity problems, in this case, food, you are making sure that the people who continue to eat well, who can throw away half of what they put on their plate, are the richest amongst us, and the poorest are the ones who starve. We may all have similar human bodies that similarly need nourishment in a proper, healthy setting, but the market doesn't care. The market is an institution that caters to the richest amongst us, which is why they spend as much time and energy as they do celebrating the market as if it were a gift from God rather than a very self-serving institution. Richard, I want to take our audience back two years. It seems so much longer than two years ago, but it was at the start of COVID, not at the very start, but early stage. And there was a big, you know, lockdowns everywhere and people had to leave their jobs and, you know, or temporarily leave their jobs. At that time, there was a huge sort of overproduction issue because of the breakdown of distribution and supply chains when it came to food. And I'm looking at the, and this speaks directly to what you're talking about in terms of People say, let the market sort things out. Here's the article from The Guardian, May 19th, 2020. By the way, there's a picture of some very, very cute looking pigs to go with the story. And then it's more jarring when you read the words in the article. Above the cute picture of the pigs, headline, millions of U.S. farm animals to be culled by suffocation, drowning, and shooting. Closure of meat plants due to coronavirus means depopulation of hens and pigs with methods experts say are inhumane. So they're not talking about the market and the ridiculousness and absurdity of what's happening here. They're talking about the cruelty to the animals, which of course is important too, but that's not our topic for right now. But here's the first couple sentences. Again, right below the the picture of these very cute looking pigs. More than 10 million hens are estimated to have been culled, C-U-L-L-E-D, culled due to COVID-19 related slaughterhouse shutdowns. The majority will have been smothered by a water-based foam similar to firefighting foam, a method that animal welfare groups are calling inhumane. The pork industry has warned that more than 10 million pigs could be culled by September, that was September of 2020, for the same reason. The techniques used to kill the pigs, including gassing, shooting, anesthetic overdose, or blunt force trauma. So, okay, this is an important issue, like how animals are being slaughtered. 
But what's not in this article, and this is what makes it so weird, is is this the only answer? Is this the only answer? Because the big capitalist corporations that control meatpacking in America couldn't, for a profit or a, enough of a profit, distribute the food that was being backed up. Anyway, let's just talk about this because this is an issue I think that would only really exist under a capitalist system. Yes, it it is capitalism. That's what capitalism is. It's the organization of producing goods and services where the goal, the incentive, the objective of the producer, the enterprise, the workplace, whatever you call it, is to make a profit. And that's really simple. It means to take whatever money you pour into the business with the goal of coming away when you're done with more money than you put in. As Karl Marx called it, the self-expansion of value. The businessman or woman invests a million dollars with the purpose and the goal of getting at the end of a year a million one hundred thousand dollars, for example. That would be a 10% gain, a 10% profit. And that's the issue. Every decision that a businessman or woman makes, and this is what you're taught in business school, every decision is to be governed, guided, shaped by what makes money. Nothing is more common in movies, in books, than saying, we're in the business of making money, or my goal is to have the money prove to be fruitful. There's a million ways capitalism gets expressed in our culture. But the bottom line is that people have to understand, if you allow capitalism to be the way you organize your food industry, for example, well then, feeding people is secondary to making money. If it's more profitable to kill the pig than to slaughter it and freeze it or make it available in any one of a dozen different forms, stock it in a salted form, human beings have been very creative in that. We're not going to do any of that because that's not profitable. Profit is the bottom line, not feeding people. We know we have the same thing in this country with healthcare. If you allow capitalist enterprises to govern the hospital, the doctor's practice, the drug and device maker, the medical insurance company, well, then they're going to run their businesses as they are expected to, as they are paid to, as their shareholders want them to make a profit. We don't care very much how you do it, but you cannot expect anything other than jeers from us, if you come back and say to us, well, I'm terribly sorry, we didn't make any profit this year, but I feel really good about the people we fed, or the people we cured, or the good things we did over here. No one is interested. That is a decoration for the annual report. That's what your PR firm gives out to the media to tell the world how concerned you are, say, about your workers or about the environment or fill in the blank. The truth of it is, and we all know it, that capitalism is a system that puts profits first. And watching the market work the way it does, 
serving the people who have the profits, the people who have the wealth. So because they can afford to buy the food, no matter what its price is, they're not going to the discount shelf and buying two-week-old loaf of bread or a dented can so they can have something to eat. They wouldn't dream of it. We're a society that is more and more dividing into a very small number of rich people and a vast number of people, either poor or clinging by their fingernails to the vanishing middle class. Richard, let's go back to the other part of this story, and it's what you mentioned in the beginning, but it's not in the article, the letter, the dire you know, letter warning about the outcome of food price increases and global hunger from the head of the World Bank. It's not mentioned in the article at all, but part of this, and a very, very big part of this, is deliberately caused by explicit U.S. policy decisions. When you sanction countries, when you deprive them of the right to trade, if you you know close them off, if you make it impossible for them to sell that which they can sell, including in this case, grain and food, because Russia is so completely sanctioned, there's intentionality about it. The whole point of sanctions is, as Henry Kissinger said about the sanctions imposed on the Salvador Allende government between 1970 and 73 in Chile, he said, our goal is to make the economy scream. Of course, economies don't scream, human beings scream. And in fact, they did scream. They scream because they were being choked off. And the United States today has sanctions on about one third of the people of the world. About 40 countries are subject to U.S. sanctions. So, you know, from Korea, North Korea to Cuba to Venezuela, of course, Iran, now Russia, but it's a large part of the world. There's intentionality about this. The U.S. wants the people to scream. They want them to have high food prices. The whole logic of sanctions, this kind of collective punishment against the whole people because the U.S. doesn't like their government and wants to have their government toppled, the whole logic is if we can impose enough human suffering, including hunger, on a population, ultimately they'll say, we give up, we will rise up, we know that this will only end when we get rid of our government, and then we will you know, topple the government, and then we will be allowed to reintegrate into the world economy. It's kind of the gangsterist character of these U.S. policies. And again, it's done with complete intentionality. So even if the World Bank says this or that, but doesn't demand the end of sanctions, a lot of the food price increases and other shortages that we are seeing, they're going to continue because the U.S. government wants them to continue. Yeah, I think that it might be useful here not to duplicate what you just said, which I agree with, but to talk a little bit about the rationing so people do understand how practical it is. And the best way to get it across as an alternative to letting the market do what it is doing, which is causing mass hunger, starvation, and all the rest. And I don't mind saying parenthetically, you could easily have a sanction program that has exemptions. In fact, the sanction of Russia now 
does have exemptions. It exempts oil and gas shipments to Western Europe, which continue because an exemption. You could have exempted food, for example, on the grounds that it is part of something human beings can't live without. The United States tends to call the kinds of horrors it perpetrates collateral damage. It wouldn't allow the Russians to say that about whatever's happening in Ukraine. That's reserved for what damage this country causes. It's a level of hypocrisy that will one day come back to haunt us in ways I don't even want to think about. But let me talk about rationing. And I'm going to talk not hypothetically. I'm going to talk about how rationing happened in the United States during World War II. Here was the scarcity to which rationing was the response. We were fighting in World War II against the Germans and Italians in Europe and the Japanese in the Far East. Okay, that needed huge amounts of American resources, land, factories, railroad lines, all kinds of resources to fight the war, to equip the soldiers to fight the war. And that meant many fewer resources were available to produce the regular consumer goods for the American people. Those people were still there. They still wanted to consume what they had been consuming, but everybody understood there was now a going to be a scarcity because resources that used to go into producing consumer goods were going into producing war equipment. So then the question was, if consumer goods are going to be scarce, Will we let the market do in the World War II what we are letting it do now? And the answer of the United States Congress and the president was no. We have no faith in the market. We will not allow the market to be the decider. Because if we did, rich people would gobble up what consumer goods there were. Poor people wouldn't. There'd be envy envy and bitterness and anger. And that's the last thing we want or could tolerate if we're fighting a war for our survival. So we're not going to have a market. We're going to have rationing. And that's what the government did. It printed up ration tickets, they were called. And if you went into a store to buy a whole raft of consumer goods, meat, sugar, by the way, a lot of foods, meat, sugar, gallon of gasoline, coffee, a variety of things, you didn't pay with money. Or let's put it this way, whether you had money or not made little difference. You had to have a ration ticket. If you didn't have a ration ticket, you didn't get the item, whether or not you had the money to pay for its price. And how did the government hand out ration tickets? Those of you who know about the history of socialism will enjoy the answer. The tickets were handed out to each according to their need. If you had a bunch of children in your family, you got a lot more tickets for buying milk, which was rationed, than if you were a family that had no children. And if you were rural and you needed to farm, you got gasoline allotments, tickets that people who weren't on a farm didn't get, etc., etc. It was a rational, community, worked-out system 
to share the scarcity rather than let the market put the entire burden of the scarcity on those least able to absorb it while allowing the richest who needed it least to gobble up the consumer good. It is so offensive, this market mechanism, that you can see why the conservatives and the wealthy in this country spend as much time and money as they do supporting the market, celebrating the market, finding something to say positive about the market, because it is such an awful institution. Richard, we have one minute left. I want to ask you, or 90 seconds left, there are reports that hospitals all across the country are scrambling right now because of staff shortages and, you know, they're just inundated with problems and financial problems because the uninsured who had emergency COVID relief allotments designed to help healthcare institutions care for them, even though they weren't insured, those monies are gone now. And when you think about it, the U.S. is just, you know, Nancy Pelosi, Joe Biden, the Republicans, you name it. They're all talking like every day with big smiling faces about how they're going to stand with Ukraine and stand with the people in Ukraine and send $33 billion more to Ukraine. And the reaction to the hospitals not being able to handle the the overload of uninsured patients who can't pay, it's like a yawn. It's like not even talked about in the U.S. media. There's like one article and 100 articles about Ukraine. Anyway, your thoughts, 60 seconds. Well, I think there's a parallel here between Joe Biden in this country and Boris Johnson in Britain. These are people whose electoral prospects over the next year are grim to horrible. They have very little chance. Everything is going against them. This Ukraine, this is like a Hail Mary pass toward the end of a hopeless football game. They are hoping that somehow a hyped up campaign for Ukraine and against Vladimir Putin will be some kind of effective distraction that will make people get excited about that and not pay attention to the food they can't afford, to the medical care they can't get. I don't think this is a successful strategy for the Democrats. I don't think it's a successful strategy for Mr. Boris Johnson. There's an old story that many politicians have told each other, and it goes like this in the latest version. It's the economy comma, stupid, because it's the realities of daily life that in the end completely dwarf all those other activities. And yes, no money for all the things we need at home and limitless amounts of money pouring weapons into a country at war. It's extraordinary. Richard Wolff is the co-founder of the organization Democracy at Work, the author of many books, The latest being the sickness is the system when capitalism fails to save us from pandemics or itself. He has a new hard copy edition of his book, Understanding Marxism, and has a new lengthy introduction as well. Be sure to check out all of his work at rdwolf.com. We'll be back tomorrow with The Socialist Program. You've been listening to The Socialist Program with Brian Becker, where we bring you news and views about the world for those who want to change it. 
If you enjoyed the show, subscribe on your favorite podcast app and follow us on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. And watch video episodes of our in-depth show, The Real Story, every Wednesday at 7 p.m. Eastern on YouTube with our partner, Breakthrough News. We can only continue our work bringing you high-quality news, analysis, and history with the support of our listeners. Connect with us and become a patron at patreon.com slash the socialist program and receive an invitation to participate in an exclusive monthly seminar with Brian Becker. Thank you.